you know, that's kind of how we succeeded in the bicycle retail world. We looked at where's everyone, you know, doing just old school marketing tactics. And, and we went the other route. We engaged people differently. We made people laugh. We paid attention to a lot more details that a lot of other people didn't pay attention to. Welcome to Forward Looking Business, the show where ambitious and successful CEOs share their capital allocation strategies, which have enabled them to maximize the potential of their companies. With your hosts, CEO and founder Kevin Griffith and CMO Nick Lipitsky. All right. Hello. Welcome to episode four of Forward Looking Business. This is Nick Lepetsky with Amplify Capital. Thank you for joining us again. This is the first segment, actually our favorite segment so far, is what we call business nerds. The uh, CEO of Amplify, Kevin Griffith, is uh, often called a business nerd, and I think we're all proud of it. And so what we were trying to do is bring on fellow business nerds uh, to have conversations about business. Uh, Usually it's on topic. We want to make sure that we're covering issues around what we're passionate about, which is capital allocation. Today, our first guest for this segment is Jeff Cayley. He's the founder of Worldwide Cyclery and the newly launched brand Kettle. He is here today to talk about his business, the new launch of Kettle and how that uh, specifically fits into uh, what we would call a strategy within capital allocation. Hi, Jeff. Welcome. Welcome. What's up, gentlemen? Thanks for having me. Thanks. This isn't awkward at all. So we'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've known Jeff for, uh, gosh, probably over a year now. I'm trying to think back at you know, when we, we first met. We met Jeff because uh, one of the guys on our team has been a fan of his website, ordered a product, loved his email, sent him an email saying, hey, we love what you guys are doing. And next thing you know, we've been talking about business for quite a while now. Jeff is very successful with his website. He's an e-commerce business. Why don't, why don't you talk about your business and then also let us know about what's happening with Kettle? Yeah, totally. So um, I'm assuming... Plenty of people probably aren't mountain bikers that might be listening, but I grew up riding and racing mountain bikes and raced pro for a little bit and then really just saw an opportunity in the industry, specifically kind of in the e-commerce segment, because I'd always kind of been, you know, working in the brick and mortar side of things on the like off seasons of racing and stuff. And yeah, started the business a while ago. So launched it in 2011. So where it's at present day, we have three retail stores, brick and mortar, but it's predominantly e-commerce. And most of that is on our website, which is hosted on Shopify, of course. But we also do a, a decent sized eBay and Amazon business as well. So the three brick and mortars are spaced out throughout the country that also act as fulfillment centers. And we just kind of specialize in that really high-end segment of the mountain bike world. So basically bicycles that are like $5,000 plus, all the components, parts, accessories, apparel, all of that sort of stuff. So we're a retailer and we carry just over a hundred brands. And, and yeah, that's that's kind of like the gist of what Worldwide Cyclery is. So if you're deep into the mountain bike scene, you're, you're probably aware of who we are. We're the, we're the fifth largest globally now and the third largest in North America in terms of bicycle retail. So that's, that's kind of the gist of it. And then the new stuff, Kettle Mountain, was a, a mountain bike apparel brand that we, we purchased from one of our distributors. And so, yeah, I'm sure we can get into that and talk about that. But that's kind of the, that's the gist of what the existing business is today. So Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, we're fans of what you've been doing. And tell us how business is currently with COVID and social distancing. Yeah, I mean, I am unbelievably grateful that we're just, we happen to be in an industry that 
you know, hasn't been impacted at all. It's actually kind of benefited from it. I feel totally lucky. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, I don't know if anyone saw this coming, right? It all kind of took us by surprise and is a very strange problem. And I don't think anyone on the planet has considered their business model and thought like, oh, is this business model protected against a global pandemic or not? Um, <laughs> we, we certainly did not, but we just got totally lucky. So when all this started getting bad, sort of early March, you know, of course, we were worried, mostly worried that consumer spending was going to drop a ton. And, you know, we sell discretionary goods, right? Nobody needs a $5,000 bike or any of the components to upgrade on there. Like, you absolutely do not need that. So we're always worried, like, if consumer, you know, if discretionary spending drops, you know, what's going to happen to us? And so we were a bit cautious at first and wanted to sell some inventory, but we've just seen traffic online. And so we do a lot of media content as well on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And we saw all the consumption of that just soar. The traffic to our website just soar. And just looking at Google Trends data, there's just more people. So the, the avid riders who we serve are just riding more because they're working from home. We typically serve a clientele that's a, basically a wealthy white male is the stereotypical demographic. It's, you know, age 35 to 50 and high income. And they're at home working, riding more often. And then there's a lot more people getting into the sport. Avid riders are getting their friends into it, their families into it. The federal government deemed bike shops as essential. I think mostly because, <laughs> you know, people ride bikes to essential jobs, including healthcare workers and distribution centers and things like that. So we, we kind of got lucky there. I mean, the, the vast majority of our staff has been working at home that can. The distribution centers are just operating very differently for social distancing and cleanliness and all that sort of stuff. And we're doing our best to, like, you know, comply and be smart and respect the CDC and everything. But we've still been able to operate, albeit a bit differently in a, and with a bit more friction. But, yeah, I mean, revenue is totally intact, which I'm extremely grateful for because I know a lot of businesses, it is not at the moment. Yeah, you did. You you got lucky, and I think a good example too of being um, capable with online, right? I think uh, we hear totally. a more about that right now. Go ahead. I get, there's a lot of prep going into that, Jeff. You might be underselling it a little bit. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're in, you're in the right place at the right time, but the fact that you are the size that you are, the online presence you have, like you were ready, you know, and to some extent waiting for something like this, like the strength that you had walking into it, definitely is lending, I think, itself well. So, which is great. Yeah, we definitely had like quite the infrastructure set up prior to all of this happening, right? Which, which was nice because we're, we're about 35 people between the three locations. And then so, you know, as the traffic spiked and the landscape shifted, right? People aren't going to brick and mortar stores as often and they're going right. online more. And, you know, we have a huge online presence and a lot of right. content out there that's all right. being found and all that. Yeah, you're right. We were, we were definitely prepared for that just being a, you know, predominantly e-commerce business to begin with. Well, and Annette, it's interesting because, you know, from a capital allocation standpoint, you chose to invest a lot in that brand, in that marketing, you know, not necessarily thinking about what a pandemic, right? But you knew it was your competitive advantage, right? Like you knew that people wanted to hear from you in a certain way. You've done a lot of obviously segmentation and customer research around that. Like, I think it's just a great example of, you know, when people invest in their competitive advantage and don't look necessarily to cut costs, how it pays off. Uh, yeah, at least so far. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a that's a solid point for sure. So yeah, I mean, then you decided to go into clothing, which you know, <laughs> at first blush, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. So I mean, the reason we're doing that, you know, the the business we have now is is definitely established and stable and and a good healthy business model. 
But at the same time, like any business, right, it has its inherent weaknesses and you can kind of see how those play out over time. And, and one of them that's been very bothersome for me is it's a couple of things. I mean, it, it's mainly just retail, right? So being in retail, we don't own any of the brands that we sell. And the weakness to that is, you know, at least in our industry, one, you have no control over those brands. And if they're going to be going consumer direct, or if they're going to choose to work with other retailers, like you, you just have a a big lack of control there. And luckily that's spread across a lot of brands, but those brands are seeing consolidation as well, which makes each one of them more risky, right? If one brand is even making up 10% of our revenue, that's a bit risky because who knows what they're going to do tomorrow, regardless of the relationships we have with them and other retailers have with them. So the other part is is just margins, right? So I, I love the finance side of things. And in this business, you know, starting it it was actually a pretty easy business to start because we didn't really have to invest into any inventory. On a large scale, there was a lot of a good distribution network set up behind the scenes that we were able to piggyback off of and do just-in-time inventory. So we were able to scale revenue very quickly without needing any investment money or any like you know large amount of capital because we really didn't need to buy inventory to sell it. We could sell it, then buy it like within 24 hours. So in that sense, it was good. The bad side of that is there's no economies of scale, right? So our margin, our gross margin is basically stuck. And as the business grows, you know, that cost of goods sold line just trails parallel to that revenue line and the gross margin doesn't get any bigger. And there's no way to increase it. And because all the brands, it's like, hey, you know, we want a bigger margin. And they, you know, basically they come back with, okay, cool. Just stock up on some ridiculous amount of inventory and, you know, then you get a little bit bigger gross margin, but then you probably can't sell it on time. And then it just deteriorates the whole thing. Right. It doesn't do any good. So there's no economies of scale to it at all. So the, the bigger it gets, that gross margin stays stagnant and your OPEX goes up and you just realize you're growing yourself out of business. So I wanted to get into one, a bigger industry like high-end mountain bikes. You know, we've built a good sized business off of it now, but it's still very much a niche industry, although it is global. Mm-hmm. And uh, the outdoor apparel market to me was just a much more enticing market that you know, fits all of our same core values, what we enjoy, what we do, what we've all participated in as a team and sort of really fits with like who we are as people. But it's just a way, way bigger global industry. And it has great economies of scale when you have like a direct to consumer brand and you're, you know, you're maintaining the whole thing yourself. So for us, it was a pretty easy thing to think, wow, we could get into a bigger industry, you know, piggyback off of our existing audience and customer base, since they all participate in that, and hopefully grow and scale this new thing in in outdoor apparel. And uh, yeah, it would just give us, you know, an ability to try it with fairly minimal risk. And and again, utilizing everything we've already built, right? Like it's going to utilize that same audience, that same team in terms of e-commerce, you know, in terms of fulfillment infrastructure, all that sort of stuff. So there's like a lot of the foundational pieces already put in place that we could use to make this you know, new venture into the apparel market, just less risky. And you know, with the amount of upside there is to us, it was like, well, it's a no brainer because if we could do that and scale it, we could have a ton of impact and, and a bunch of fun running it. And, you know, could could be an enjoyable, good venture to sort of target. And it would give us, you know, again, it would take away the things we didn't like. It would have economies of scale. We would have full control of the brand because we'd own it outright. It wouldn't be a retailer. Mm-hmm. And those, those are like the main threats that, you know, bother me now in our existing business model. So why we kind of wanted to, you know, diversify and, and go out for a new venture and tack it on top of what we're already doing. So was that kind of the process 
in terms of you're looking at your your business, you're you're seeing, you know, what are my what are the threats? Kind of a classic SWAT and yep, saying, right. you know, what do we got? Like, what are the assets we have that we can leverage? And then starting looking at ancillary businesses because it's so different for no matter how small you are, if you have an existing business, you're always a leg up on a startup, right? Yeah. And so you're really understanding what you have and leveraging that. Like, how long did that take you to figure out or was it just kind of instinctual because you knew the business so well? Yeah, it, it took a while, you know, and, and I think that's just been evolution. You know, I, I started the business at 21. So I more or less didn't know what I was doing. I knew the products really well and I understood the distributors and the, how the retailers worked and, you know, how to sell the stuff and then got better and better at selling it and fulfilling it. And then slowly started to understand the finance behind all of it. And then understand, you know, the threats and the weaknesses to the business model and the industry in general. So it's just, can, it's been kind of a slow process. And then, mm. and then little things just bother you, right? You see brands that you're a retailer for and you invest all this time and energy and just make terrible decisions that negatively impact you and them. And you have mm -hmm. really no control over that. You can right. advise them all you want, but they're still going to do whatever the hell they want because it's their brand. Right. And that's super frustrating. And that makes you really just be like, God damn, I don't want to, I don't want to sell other people's shit anymore. I want to sell <laughs> stuff. I want to sell my own shit. <laughs> so it's, so it's kind of just been a slow evolution. And yeah, part of it is looking at, you know, what infrastructure that we have now that we can leverage and um, yeah. And then just the whole, you know, controlling the brand outright type of thing. And a lot of retailers go that route, right? They build these small house brands that they can just tack on and sell to their existing audience. We kind of wanted to do that plus find a way to expand into a, a larger industry in general. So, so yeah, it, it was just an evolution of, of the thinking of, you know, what we were doing and, and where we were going to go next and also understanding, you know, how soon we needed to do it and could we afford it? You know, what infrastructure do we have now that we can leverage in terms of sure. people as well? And yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You look across industries, it's always a battle between the retailer and the brand, yeah, right? And the absolutely. brand, the brand almost always won until Walmart showed up mm -hmm. and then they, now they always lose <laughs> at least in the CPG world. Like that. And so for these niche, the, and that's what's so interesting about the kind of the internet and, and even these niche markets, right? It always used to be about the brand and they're the retailers get upset, right? Yeah. To the exact points you're talking about, but the, the apparel market, I mean, t talk me through, Obviously, there's a lot of fits that you kind of went through, but there's obviously issues in terms of fashion and trends and getting caught on the wrong angle on that. You know, walk me through kind of your thought process on that. Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, again, for us, it's it's not a startup. I mean, the, the new brand, Kettle Mountain, yes, it's like very much in its infancy right now. And it is sort of a startup, but we're not a startup. Like we're an established business. So we can, we can play around a lot with it and, and afford to make a lot of mistakes with it. And, and that's kind of what we intend to do. So yeah, when we look at the apparel market, it's, it's very interesting, right? So you have on one end of the spectrum, you know, fast fashion and the, the craziness behind that of environmental impact and, and just huge swings and hitting styles right and hitting styles wrong and, you know, all that craziness. And then, you know, you have other brands, right? You know, high margin brands like Lululemon and, and Patagonia and their sort of take on, on what they're doing and how they're leveraging their brand and, and who they are as people to sort of sell apparel. And, you know, Lululemon's probably a little bit more technical forward than Patagonia. Patagonia, like, obviously makes super high quality technical product, but they 
they don't sell it as much as Lulu does in terms of technicality. They're more on like the brand side. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it was thinking, you know, what does a modern day apparel brand look like? And, and what does one look like in the future and how does it operate? And, you know, that's kind of how we succeeded in the bicycle retail world. We looked at where's everyone, you know, doing just old school marketing tactics, poor branding, poor just consumer engagement in general. And, and we went the other route, right? I mean, where we're positioned now as a retailer and why we've sort of grown and eaten so much market share of these legacy guys is because we went a different route. We engaged people differently. We made people laugh. We paid attention to a lot more details that a lot of other people didn't pay attention to. We built a brand, not just, we're, there's a big difference between us as a retailer in, in the market in the bicycle retail world, because like we're a brand that people know, like, and trust and produce valuable content and people know who we are because of video and because of all the content that we put out. Whereas other retailers, the, even the large ones are really just a place to buy shit and people just know that's where you go, you know? And so, so we looked at that same kind of thing in apparel, you know, what can we do where we're good at sort of sophisticated modern day marketing and brand building? How can we do that in the apparel world? And some brands are doing it pretty well, and, and some are doing it awful. And, and then you have legacy brands that kind of just exist and survive and sell a ton of products, you know, that really don't have much of a strong brand, but they just have a name that's been around for decades. So they're kind of just living off of that. So for us, we look at it and think, you know, we don't want to be, we're not going to be like a style focused brand. Honestly, the way it's probably going to roll out more over the next couple of years, like our experiment with it is we want to create a bunch of content, mostly video content that really shows the lifestyle that we believe in and shows who we are and offers like character development and behind the scenes sort of stuff. And sort of like inspires people to have more fun in life and adventure more often and be more, you know, spontaneous and that sort of thing. And the media, it's going to lead with media. And then it's just going to happen to be produced by an apparel brand that really does care about making phenomenal apparel that fits and suits that lifestyle. So it's very much not about being on the fashion side of things and much more so about being like a media outlet that happens to be run by a, an apparel company that makes great apparel that's thoughtfully designed. Mm -hmm. So that's the angle we're going to take with it. And, and we're pretty excited to try it. And again, it's one of those things that that's, a, that's more of a long-term play. It's not like a fast fashion style type of play. It's definitely more long-term thinking, but and it's, and it's one we can afford to attempt to execute over the following two to three years and really see, you know, how it resonates and, and how it works. So it's, it's going to be a different take on like what a historical apparel brand has done and how they go to market and how they engage with their customer. So in terms of the content and the media, it makes total sense, but like, you know, your worldwide cycling content, it definitely fits with the purpose of a retailer, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you go to a retailer, especially before the internet and you ask them, Hey, what is this thing? Yeah. Right. And you're, you're filling that role with your content. How does that work with apparel? Like in, in particular with kettle, like what, what are you thinking? Yeah, totally. So it's, it's going to be very different, you know, now as a retailer, you're right. I mean, we're providing, you know, we sell technical products and a lot of what we do in terms of content is educate people on mm -hmm. what the hell these technical products are and what they do and help you down the journey of purchasing them. And, you know, as, as an apparel retailer, like you do, there's no education really at all. So, so for us, it's, it's a very different style of media that we'll produce. Yeah. It'll be much more similar to 
there's a YouTube channel called Yes Theory, and they do a lot of cool sort of travel videos and just interesting content that, you know, is around, you know, the idea of getting out of your comfort zone, saying yes to more things, traveling to new places. That's kind of like their niche. And they do great with that. And they have like a merch line that's not custom apparel. It's just straight up branded merch that they have called Seek Discomfort uh, around selling that. So that's kind of, you know, what they're doing is they're producing cool content that's really related to an ideology, like a life philosophy, right. and then selling a, a merch line of clothing as tribal wear that represents that. And that's kind of similar to what we'll do. So our content will be very different. It'll, it'll be much more adventure focused and travel focused and, you know, much more focused on sort of, you know, exploring the outdoors and why that's meaningful and exploring the idea of fun and how different people have fun in different parts of the world all over the place. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a totally, totally different style and type of content that that we'll have to like slowly get better and better at, but it, it will still stay true to really who we are. Like as our team as people, which resonates with, you know, our existing team and myself of, we like to have fun. We like to travel. We like to meet new people. We like to get out of our comfort zone. We like to adventure, try new shit. And that's going to be kind of like the, the genesis of the content and the ideology around that channel. And uh, yeah, the, the content will kind of mix into that and hopefully like promote and inspire that lifestyle and resonate with people and be like a good, fun, entertaining YouTube channel. And yeah, so totally, it's a good question because it is going to be a very different style of content that we're going to have to, you know, slowly learn how to get better and better at because it will mm -hmm. be different than what we produce now as a retailer. So let me, let me diverge a little bit because I was trying to think through like, what would be a good historical example? Mm -hmm. And of course I was trolling YouTube because cable is expensive <laughs> and I didn't know this, but Fila was the second highest basketball shoe in the nineties. And I always thought as well, no, I'd be Nike and Adidas or Reebok or something like that. No, in, in the early 90s, Fila pivoted from a tennis shoe to basketball. And they were the second, they were the second largest. And then they obviously struggled for about 15 years. And they're with the kind of with the 90s coming back, so to speak. They're like they're coming back themselves. And it what the YouTube video is talking about no credibility whatsoever with the, the person making it, but they were saying, um, you know, Fila's uh, athlete was Grant Hill. I mean, to some extent, shoes are, you're selling a lifestyle, right? It, it's, yeah. It was almost the first, one of the first lifestyle brands and Nike kind of perfected it and to some extent got lucky with Jordan, but they had Grant Hill and the video said Grant Hill wasn't Jordan. He wasn't Shaq, which was Reebok and, that's always the risk with apparel is to your point, like you create this image of what the the brand is and the clothes relate to, but what happens if that image starts to decline and how you, how do you keep it fresh? Like, how do you be Nike and not Fila? Right. Totally. And just totally sprung this on you. But I mean, it, it, that's, what's so challenging. And for a guy like me who wears Carhartts and nothing else, like, I don't, I don't know necessarily. It's a whole new world. I mean, I, I definitely won't pretend to know the answers. I, I think a lot of it is is just kind of learning as you go, you know, and that is one of the things with content is, is how do you, you know, consistently keep content fresh and engaging? And that's tough. And, and we've gone through cycles with that, you know, with Worldwide Cyclery of just putting out, testing different styles of content, seeing mm -hmm. what resonates, what doesn't. 
And, and it is, it's super challenging. I mean, to keep that going for, for a long time. And I think with our existing business, it's, it's a bit easier because we're really appealing to a niche market that just straight up loves high right. mountain bikes. Right. And with what we want to do with Kettle, it's going to appeal to a much broader market. So bringing people into that and then keeping them engaged and keeping your churn low enough that you can like grow a media channel around something and be entertaining. Yeah, I think that'll be super hard. And I think it'll be harder to do for years on end. I think I think that's where it gets tough, right? Like, how do you maintain that for a decade? Because there's so many, like, even if you just look at sort of individual YouTube creators, there's a lot of them that sort of just yeah. hit these highs and then they really just drop off. Like they just yeah. can't continuously produce good content that resonates. And right. the hard thing about content today too is, it's so algorithm dependent, right? I mean, if you're putting out a video, you know, it doesn't even matter if you have 5 million subscribers on YouTube or not, if it doesn't trip the YouTube algorithm very well in the first two hours, like YouTube's just going to basically throw it in the garbage and it's so algorithm dependent. So it's, so it's really hard and you really have to consider that algorithm while you're producing that content. So I don't know, that, that's a tough one. I, I think that'll be a, a fun and, and interesting experience to, to sort of figure out. And, and I think to us, like, I look at it as a good challenge. I think we have such a good, healthy, stable business now and, and to be able to be fortunate enough to, to try and swing to, you know, build a, an interesting, new, weird sort of media apparel hybrid company and, uh, and be able to take interesting risks with it will be cool. And then, yeah, how we keep that audience engaged and that content useful and fresh for a decade plus. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll, we'll be doing our best. That's for sure. <laughs> It'll be fun adventure, right? Exactly. Um, well, so shifting a little bit to product, right? I mean, one thing that as an online retailer, you, you don't really have to worry about, and correct me if I'm wrong, is new products, right? Like the yeah. brands and the manufacturers are coming up with new product. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of costs with launching new products, so how are you thinking about that? Are you thinking you're going to have a few hero products and those are going to carry you or, or is the product development engine going to start spinning up? Yeah. Yeah. That'll be an interesting one. Cause you know, that's one of the benefits of being a retailer. Like you said, you don't really need to worry about any of that stuff. And then once you own the brand, that's all you worry about, especially inventory. Inventory really is, is not much of our problem right now. And with Kettle, it'll be entirely our problem and ordering enough of it and not ordering too much of it. So that one, I think it's going to be tough and that's going to be a learning curve for us for sure. Cause it's going to be new our outlook on it is that, you know, you know, like we just talked about earlier, because we're not going to be this sort of fashion forward brand, but more so a lifestyle brand, whereas we want people to, you know, love and enjoy the content we produce and then hopefully want to buy the apparel because not only it's good quality stuff and suits their lifestyle, but it also, the logo on there represents something to them that makes them feel good and makes mm -hmm. them want you know have that aspirational lifestyle and affiliate with it so because of that you know we're hoping to sort of just get longevity out of certain products way more so than a fashion brand would that's sort of our our take and hypothesis on it now mm -hmm. how that pans out in terms of how often do we need new colors and fresh product I don't know. We'll see. I mean, you, you definitely notice, you know, brands that are more fashion forward, they don't really talk about anything other than new product, you know, and that's mm -hmm. kind of the only value they're bringing. Like, hey, look at this new style. 
you might like and you might want to wear because you feel sure. like you look good in it. And that's like their whole MO, like that's it. And then you look at brands that are much more content forward, even like the way Patagonia works these days. And they're way more, you know, they're just not talking about new products as often. They're talking, they're producing way more stuff on what their mission's about and environmentalism and equality and inclusion and outdoor sports and things like that. And they're producing way more content around that. And then they're kind of just letting the consumers discover, you know, the new products on their own in, in stores or online. So I think that's going to be kind of our take to it. But yeah, it'll absolutely be a learning curve to see how that works. Because yeah, even if somebody does like, oh, I love the content, like I want to wear this brand. I don't really like any of these products at the moment. Maybe eventually they'll have something new. Oh, if we don't come out with like anything new or new, even new colors, mm-hmm. you know, they might even just keep checking and then eventually get burned out and be like, well, these guys are never going to have anything I want to wear, but I'll still watch their YouTube videos. I don't know that that could happen too. I think that balance will will certainly be a learning curve and hopefully yeah. something that we can strategically avoid by hitting the nail on the head with, with the right apparel products that do resonate with the people yeah. that like the channel. Yeah. I mean, so kind of, kind of laying out this framework, you looked at what you had, you looked out into different markets you thought might be attractive. You identified apparel, you saw the risks that different apparel companies had, you picked the model that you wanted. You know, I think it makes total sense to not rely heavily on new product, at least out of the gate, because it is much riskier in terms of uh, financial capital. Mm-hmm. So then you, know, you figured all this out. Why Kettle? And I know you acquired it. And so how did you figure out what to pay for it? Yeah, so that was pretty easy and kind of interesting. So more or less, like all the things we talked about, about our current business sort of hitting a wall in terms of gross margin and no economies of scale. Then we're like, okay, we need to start owning our own brand. So we first looked at probably like the the lower hanging fruit, what would be easy? Well, we could just acquire or build a bike brand or a component brand. It's like, okay, those are some viable options. And we looked into it pretty heavily. And and then, so we'd been a retailer for Kettle for three years. So a distributor in our industry, totally behind the scenes distributor that just sells to retailers. They'd launched Kettle. They have about a dozen other house brands. Kettle was their only apparel brand. And they they launched it. We were a retailer for it. We really liked the branding and the products, but we clearly saw where they missed the mark in a bunch of ways. It was it was too expensive. It was mostly the fact that like, you know, they launched a brand in let's see, late 2016 in apparel brand that was pretty pricey and they weren't doing anything consumer direct at all because they just were a distributor. Mm. Like, how do you even think you're gonna have remotely any success like not selling at all direct right. to consumer and like Why? they just had this like dated terrible website for it and it was like they're, they're just product people and they're wholesale people and it ends there like they have no clue how to market to the consumer or even understanding like a business model remotely beyond wholesale so we've been a retailer for kettle we liked the branding and the product and everything and then they actually they came to us and said hey you guys have been a retailer for a long time you know we're considering closing this brand down because, you know, we're not having as much success with it as we anticipated. And I was like, well, yeah, no shit. Like, look at your website, look at your social, look at your price points. Like you guys missed the mark all over the place here. Product's great. It's almost too good. It's too expensive. And, you know, so that's when I pitched the idea. I was like, well, you know, if you just want to close it down, we'll take it. And it was, it was kind of perfectly positioned, right? Because it was, it was a mountain bike gear brand, but the whole idea of it was 
mountain bike gear that has a much more casual look to it. So you could wear it elsewhere and you could hike in it and you could do, you know, rock climb in it. And it had like other functionality to it. It was like very cross-functional. Whereas a lot of mountain bike wear is like very loud and looks like, you know, it came from motocross gear and a lot of the motocross gear companies make it right. So it's like flashy, loud, huge logos, awkwardly placed zippers all over shit. I mean, it's just stupid. And Kettle had like a great unique sort of take on it that we really liked and, and saw a lot of potential with. And so for us, it was like, wow, we can still sort of pitch this to our mountain bike audience and slowly transition it into an outdoor brand that works on the bike, works off the bike, works on a hike, et cetera, like more cross-functional sort of minimalist mm-hmm. apparel that kind of like can be a chameleon in a lot of different situations. So that's kind of how that evolved. And we saw that opportunity. And w- when they came to us, obviously the ball was in our court, right? Cause they're like, yeah, we we're just thinking about closing it down. Cause it's not, it's not as successful as, you know, as we wanted it to be. And so for us, you know, when we're like, well, can we buy it? And they're like, well, sure. Yeah. We didn't think of that. And for me, then I was like, okay, like I looked at, you know, the amount of inventory they had and the fact that, you know, the problem was they came to us and they're like, yeah, we're thinking about closing it down because it's not as successful as we wanted it to be. So like immediately it's like, okay, well, I'm in a pretty good position here to negotiate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so it was, it was pretty damn simple. I, I basically, you know, thought about it a little while. And I figured, okay, well, you know, there's, we, we, we do a lot of business with them, right? Cause they're, they're a distributor of a ton of the brands we sell. So I just thought about it and I was like, you know what, probably best case scenario is if we could just buy out all their inventory, added somewhat of a discount and that's it. Like we just buy it for the cost of inventory. So that's what I pitched. I said, Hey, can we do, you know, 10%, like we'll buy out the entire inventory over the next 12 months in four different tranches. And we want it for 10% off. And as soon as we, you know, finish buying it all out, we get the trademark and it's all ours. And they're like, sure. <laughs> so we bought it for the cost of inventory, which was great, right? I mean, that's what made it so easy because we know we can sell that amount of inventory, no problem. So especially at cost. So, you know, worst case, even if we never made a single new thing, we just sold all the existing stuff we bought. We just got it for free, right? Like the cost mm-hmm. of inventory. So it was super simple. And in going through that process with them and the fact that they like, I just pitched them the first offer and they're like, yeah, sure. Like it was awesome. Cause prior to that, we'd looked at acquiring a couple different bike brands, like frame manufacturers. And it was just a nightmare. Like the negotiations even the preliminary negotiations were, were a nightmare of like what they're doing, revenue and profit and this and that. And it was just a total nightmare. But because this was like just a brand, a house brand of like a large company, you know, we didn't, weren't acquiring employees with it. We, we weren't really acquiring like, you know, there wasn't even a traditional like valuation put on it. It wasn't like, oh, it's done this much revenue and this much profit. It was, you know, like they had those metrics, of course, but, you know, they, again, were just like, yeah, we were just thinking about closing it down. And so it was super easy to be like, well, we'll just buy it for the cost of inventory. Yeah. So, yeah. It was, it was a really simple deal. So that's how that worked out. <laughs> that's great. Well, I, so, I mean, if I get this right, the, uh, it's another kind of example of when preparation meets opportunity, right? Yeah. It's not like they came to you and said, Hey, you want to buy kettle? It's like, no, nah, you had already thought this through totally. pretty well. And it's like, yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, and then and then you get a great price for it. You know, that's that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was it was just good luck for sure. I mean, it was just you know serendipity just 
played out well for us on that one. So yeah, it was, it was cool. And that's, that's also what made it like such a no brainer decision to be like, well, you know, when the opportunity arose, it was like, wow, this has so like, I mean, think about it. if, if this works right over the next three to five years, we crash it with media. We sell a shit ton of apparel. Like we build a large brand. We hit economies of scale with it. Like it has monumental upside when you look and you compare it to just other brands, like other huge apparel brands, huge upside. And what was the downside? It's like, well, we're going to buy for the cost of inventory and then leverage our existing infrastructure. Like, of course, like why right. not take that risk? Right. You know, super yeah. minimal downside and a ton of upside for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best way to price a deal risk mm-hmm. reward because you can't, can't eliminate all risk. Yeah, totally. So if I'm going to go on, I'm looking at the website now, the summit short sleeves, that one looks like a winner. Are you shopping now? Yeah. <laughs> and you sell women's apparel, which my mom's going to love because she, she goes to all these different websites and they never have a very good women's selection. And I always hear about it. Like it's my fault. It's like, <laughs> I'll tell you what. Yeah. So actually to touch on that, that, that might be interesting for anyone listening. So our company being in the mountain bike industry is about 85 or I think now like 90% male staff, as you would imagine. And Kettle was definitely targeting both genders. And for us, it was like, man, if we're going to produce apparel for next year, do we continue with women's? And for me, from like a strategy standpoint, it was like, this is going to resonate more if, I mean, I look at brands like brands that just kind of like really pick a niche and especially newer brands. Like the only way they're really coming up is like really picking a niche and targeting that audience. And even looking at like what Gap has done. So Gap's like subsidiary brands, Hill City, just men's activewear. And then their other brand, Athleta, which is just women's activewear. And Athleta is like resonates so well with their audience because they just do women's wear and they're mm-hmm. so good at it. And they're like so good at like empowering females and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, man, in order to do both, I was like, I don't know anyone new that's doing both very well. The old brands have a different scenario, right? Like everyone knows these old legacy brands sort of sell men's and women's, but a lot of the right. newer brands are just kind of going after one gender. So we're going to sell through the women's this year and then just do menswear sort of until further notice until we think, cause we just don't know anything, right? Like it would right. be, it would be dumb of us to think that we can understand women's apparel and sell to them when we're just a bunch of dudes. And I think a lot of apparel brands fail at that because they also are run by a bunch of white dudes and trying to like sell apparel to women and just missing the mark. That's super common in the outdoor industry. And even at outdoor retailer, like you hear those complaints all the time and why there's such a push for diversity and not just ethnicity at the top end of these brands, but in in gender as well. And so for us, it was like, you know what? We're going to sell through the women's wear we have. And then next year, just going to do men's wear until we better understand, like, should we start a, like a sister brand that does right. women's wear or should we reintroduce women's apparel under the same brand? I don't know. We're just kind of leaving that one up in the air, you know, at least until like 2022. Cause yeah, yeah, it's, it's tough. Like from a strategy position, it's like, how do you engage an audience and really like keep them, keep them liking your brand and resonating with your brand and then like, how do you do that? You know, the, the broader you get, the harder that becomes, right? Yeah, if you're going yeah. men and women, it gets harder. If you're going, you know, cyclists of mountain bikers, 
plus hikers, plus general outdoors people, like it just gets harder and harder the broader you get. So we obviously with our existing business know like how we came up was just chasing niches. And that's how a lot of new businesses grow up and, and get market share and then slowly broaden out. So yeah, same strategy we're going to take there. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's one of the things I've always been really impressed with is how well you guys know your customers and how you segment them. And so, you know, taking that into the apparel, you're right. It, it, it de-risks a lot of, you know, the challenges you get into. And, you know, if you've got a loyal core customer base, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the idea. I mean, it'll, it'll definitely be new. Cause like we, we do want to continue really understanding the customer and it'll just be a, it'll just be a little bit harder to speak to them mm-hmm. and to identify them in a larger and a different sort of niche and in business and also just different media content. Right. So it'll be a good learning experience. But again, like it's, it's great that we're just leveraging our existing infrastructure to sort of expand into a new venture. That's what I'm most excited about. Yeah. Great. Hopefully that's like valuable. I mean, that was really good. Yeah. I definitely like to just speak from experience and talk about like my, my thoughts where I'm at, why I've made the decisions I've made. I don't know. I prefer to do that rather than like advise people on what the hell they should do when you don't know yeah. the situation. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Right. Yeah. And we're just trying to flesh out, you know, how people are using this concept of capital allocation in the real world and you touched on all of it. So hopefully more and more people are going to understand how to think like you think and see the, the advantage of working, um, strategically outside of their business like you do and setting up systems so that you can chase the larger vision. So yeah, totally. Yeah. You, you do it so well and, and yeah, we have fun watching you and talking with you. So thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been good. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm stoked you guys are doing it. I'm I'm sure we'll have good success with it. I mean, I, I love good, like business strategy podcasts and there's really not that many of them. That's what we found. There's, there's startup stuff everywhere. Right. And there's big enterprise, right. You can hear people talk about like the latest, the Walmart case study or whatever, but middle market, you know, where, where we're living at, it's just void. So that's, yeah, that's what we're trying to fill. It is totally like middle market business strategy. Yeah. Cause there's tons of like lame startup shit, which is just all the same stuff. There's tons mm-hmm. of like, let's talk about the earnings report of Disney in that last quarter. Like there's tons right. of that shit. Yeah. There really is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There really isn't like middle market business strategy. And I, and I think a lot of it too, like that gets missed is so many podcasts, at least that I listen to or come across and all the popular ones are like just interviewing founders it's like, that's kind of cool. Like, it's interesting to hear like how it became where it got to, but like they never touch on strategy. It's always just like super high level. And it's, it just seems like the founders there for like PR reasons, basically to make themselves right. look good. Oh, exactly. Like, listening to Yvonne Chabard, the Patagonia CEO, like he, I think it was how I built this that he was on. It was like, dude, this is the stupidest shit ever. He just like played it so cool as if he's just like, oh yeah, like I just, you know, like built the company and liked the outdoors. And it's like, no, 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 there's no fucking way on the planet you build a company that big without being like an aggressive strategic capitalist. Like spill the beans, motherfucker. I was like so pissed. I was so pissed. Like you just don't, like you just don't waltz into a massive company. That just does not happen. Like you think strategically and ferociously for fucking years on end to do that. And like, you're not telling anyone about that. Like you're just totally pretending like that never happened. It just happened, you know? I love it. We have so many good show quotes. This is great. Yeah. (laughs)
<laughs> yeah, that's so true. Well, but it's on brand for him, right? Like he's embodying that brand. He's got to, yeah. he's got to, he's got to live it every day. Totally, man. I don't know. So I, I would just push you guys, like get people on here and just pressure them with like hard questions, like pull out the strategic capitalist out of their brain because you like know that. it's in there otherwise they wouldn't have had a successful business whatsoever you know? oh dude you're the perfect first guest you've just set the stage for everybody else i love <laughs> it i love it good all right well listen to the other ones in the future and grade us on it uh, yeah get, totally get, give it to us straight it, this is great thanks a lot yeah we'll wrap it, it up and awesome good chat with you guys man Hope, yeah. hopefully it all stays well enjoy being at home yeah yeah you too. take care <laughs> all right, man take care bye-bye yeah definitely see you guys thanks for listening To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as full show notes, head on over to forwardlookingbusiness.com. There, you'll also be able to schedule a call with our capital director to see how we can help your company meet its capital allocation needs.